Ironic Steel and today boldly and unapologetically trembling at the word of God. What is it to tremble at God's word? How might we as individuals and as leaders of God's people tremble before him? And are we going soft on this? Paul Grimmond is Dean of Students at Sydney's Moore Theological College. Phil Colgan is the Senior Pastor at St George North Anglican Church in Sydney. They were both keynote speakers at the Nexus Conference last week. Uh, Phil chairs the Nexus Committee and, uh, disclaimer, I serve on that Nexus Committee. Um, Phil, I just wonder if we could start with you. How do we have pastors' hearts that uh, tremble at God's word? Thanks, Dominic, and thanks for having me. Uh, I think it means we read the scriptures to apply them to ourselves before we ever dare think about applying them to other people. Mm -hmm. Uh, one One of the best lessons I think I was ever, or encouragements I was ever given when I left Bible college, is to always make sure I do my quiet times on something that I'm not teaching on. Mm-hmm. So that I'm just reading God's word for the sake of reading God's word and uh, applying it to myself before I start to think, how can I apply this to my church? How can I apply this to other people? Uh, I think that's how we ourselves as pastors make sure we're trembling at the word of God is that we're actually doing it ourselves, not just teaching others. Yeah, Paul, I was going to ask you, how do you encourage the students to tremble at God's word, but I guess I should ask you, how do you tremble at God's <laughs> word? First? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? I, um, I realise I've come from a culture which is very much about, you know, engaging your skills in reading the text, trying to get the right answer out of it, etc., etc., etc. I think I've been reflecting quite a bit lately on my need just to kind of stand back from that process or find ways, actually, when I'm preparing to preach outside of that stepping away from just the technical aspects of life and the thinking about communication and all that kind of stuff and actually thinking deeply about what does this mean, how does this affect my affections, my beliefs, the way I behave, um, letting the Word of God impact me and challenge me in the bits and pieces of life. Um, I read a lovely um, article about a year ago from John Piper just about praying the scriptures. And there's this beautiful section where he just prays through several verses of Colossians, um, rich in application and thanksgiving to God and thoughtfulness. That's been a really helpful thing for me to kind of think about as well. If I riff off what you're saying there onto something you said at the conference last week, you spoke about our relationship with God's word as somewhat more, to quote you, complex and uneasy than most of us are prepared to admit. What did you mean by that? Yeah, look, I think, um, I mean, we have famous evangelical slogans, right? So let the word do the work. Um, You know, the Spurgeon quote, um, defend the Bible, I'd as soon defend a lion, that that kind of stuff. Um, and, And so we have this kind of popular level thing, which the word of God does its thing, and our job as pastors is just to get out of the road. Mm -hmm. And like, I want to say that there's something really lovely about that and rich, and I really respect it. Um, But at the same time, we say that, and then we spend tens of thousands of dollars and four years at Bible college learning how to get out of the way. And we spend, I don't know how many, 10, 12, 15, 20 hours in the week preparing to preach. Um, it, would, we, would, would we describe all of that as just getting out of the road or what's actually going on in terms of our relationship with scripture and our role as pastors and preachers, I think. Yeah. Mm. I, um, I had... We had quite a robust discussion in our staff meeting last week in that coming out of the Nexus conference, I said, I think we need to give more priority 
in our church meetings to the reading of the Word of God. And I, I was arguing, I think, the most important moment in the church meeting. And they said, you're kidding, aren't you? Look at the way we spend the time in the meeting. Yeah. Um, uh, we spend much less time reading the Word of God than preaching the Word of God. Paul Grimmond. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Uh, I think in our Reformation heritage, there's some lovely examples of um, morning and evening prayer in the Anglican prayer book was just sitting and reading the scriptures together. Like that's what we do. And there's something rich and important about that. I think what takes place in the sermon is really a, a deep reflection on the nature of the truth of what we hear. So it's actually helping the whole of the congregation to slow down and to think carefully and richly and deeply about what this word means about God, what it means about us, what our lives look like in light of the truth that we're hearing. Um, I don't want to make too big a distinction between those things, actually. Um, I, I want to say that our preaching should be clear and faithful and close enough to the text that there's a deep relationship between reading scriptures and having them preached. But there's a healthy thing, I think, for us, having some scripture that's just read without anybody having to tell us what to do with it. But, you know, that's part of what we are as Christians. We hear the word of God and we think about it and pray about it, try to put it into practice. Yeah, I, one, picking up on what Paul said, one thing we don't want to lose is the reality that the scriptures are understandable themselves for any believer. You don't need a priest to interpret the scriptures for you. So at that point, there's something wonderful uh, about reading the scriptures and leaving them unpreached. Uh, and so I, I remember once uh, a new person came to our church and they said, why do you have a, an Old Testament reading and a New Testament re reading and they're, they're disconnected and you only preach on one of them? You know, you haven't explained the other reading. And I said, well, why do we need to explain the reading? Uh, it's the Word of God. It, it's understandable. That's one of our great truths of the Reformation we hold to. Uh, and so it's a wonderful thing to have the public reading of Scripture, not least that we're encouraged in the New Testament to, uh, to devote ourselves to the public reading of Scripture. Indeed. Uh, so uh, so I, I think, though, but where, where Paul was really helpful in what he was reflecting on is to uh, that, that we're not just... Uh, communicating information when we preach, that the reading of the word and preaching go together. We are preaching the word of God. Uh, and so uh, I don't think your point in your staff meeting, I don't think they're at odds with one another. Mm -hmm. Yes, the reading of the scriptures should be a high point of the sermon, as should be the preaching of the word mm. of God as that word is brought to bear on people's lives in the congregation. Mm. Mm. You spoke at length, uh, Paul, on the relationship and the link between the text and the preacher, that link between the end of 2 Timothy 3 and the beginning of 2 Timothy 4. Yeah. You want to just kind of riff on that for us? Oh, look, I mean, this, this has been a real, real insight for me, I think, in the last kind of 12 to 18 months, is just the connection between the language. At the end of 2 Timothy 3, you know, Scripture is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, that language. Mm -hmm. um, uh, what's interesting for me there is just even the word useful or profitable for, these are the kinds of things that Scripture does. Um, the next verse tells you in particular what it does, that it, it equips the man of God for every good work. 
And I think the man of God there um, very specifically means the leader in amongst God's people. I don't think it's describing everybody, although if it actually equips the leader, it actually does equip everybody. <laughs> but the scriptures are profitable in all of these ways for making us ready for every good work. But we usually stop at the end of chapter 3 and then preach chapter 4 the next week. But the problem is, if it's just a letter, the very next thing he says, Jesus is about to come back in light of his appearing and judgment and the coming kingdom, preach the word. And then he tells the pastor to rebuke, correct and exhort, which is exactly the same language that he's just used for what scripture is profitable for. And so one of the things I want to say is when we talk about getting out of the road of Scripture, one of my fears about that is we have this excuse. We can kind of go, well, this is not me saying it. This is God saying it over here. Whereas I think the Scriptures very clearly call us as pastors and teachers to stand where the Word of God stands and to do what the Word of God does in relationships with people. Um, And that means being willing to accept all of the discomfort and the flack and the disappointment and whatever else it is that comes back from people as we stand identified with the word of God and speaking its truth in relationship with people. Mm. You had quite a graphic illustration of somebody who wasn't prepared to stand with the word of God in their preaching. Yeah, so on at Nexus, what I talked about was uh, if we get up and... uh, apologize for what we're teaching. And Paul talked about it before. So saying, hey, it's God saying this, not me. That's really worrying. We're, 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 we're modeling at that point to people that, that it's okay to sit in judgment over the word of God instead of to say, no, 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 if, I've, if I'm struggling with what this passage of scripture is saying, the problem is with me, not, not the scripture. I have to come to understand why this word is good. I think this is really important just to go back a step mm-hmm. to think about. Where, when we talk about trembling at the word of God, we're drawing that from Isaiah 66. Uh, and what, what we're talking about is, is there it talks about the person who is esteemed by God is humble and submissive to the word of God. In fact, they tremble at it. And we do that because the God and his word are linked together. Uh, if we believe God's word is, if we believe God is good, we believe his word is good. If we believe the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord, then we fear his word. We tremble at it. We we approach it with humility and submissiveness. And so then as preachers or as teachers of the word in whatever format, uh, when we teach the word, we have to say to people, this is good, I am trembling at it, so should you. Uh, And and we have to model that, which means we can't apologise for it. So we can't do that thing. That Paul talked mm. about, and instead of being said, "This is God talking, not me." No, it's not. I'm the man of God who's been equipped by God's word now to teach it. It's my job to stand with it, and I think that's really important in our our teaching and ministry. Mm. Oh, it, it just strikes me. I think like when we come to teach the scriptures, um, particularly the bits of it that we find uncomfortable in whatever cultural situation that we're in. Um, it's very easy for us to kind of uh, to apologise and to dance around and to do all that kind of stuff. Um, I'm not saying we need to be harsh or disrespectful or mean or grumpy. I don't think any of those things are appropriate and called for. But for us to go, you know, here's a truth from God's word. And uh, I don't like it very much, and you probably don't like it very much anyway. But um, I guess we probably should. <laughs> we probably should do something with it. Um, I want to encourage us 
at the level of our hearts to get close to the reality and go, actually, God tells us this thing for our good and what does good look like? And I think that that's actually one of maybe, as we're thinking culturally about what our issues are, um, the fight is not over the truth of these words per se, but over whether they're good or not. Mm. Uh, in terms of where we're at, where the people in our churches are at, with their neighbours or with their friends at work, the question that people are asking is, is the word of God good? Mm. Um, is it actually, is it good for us? Is it good for the world? Uh, is it the right way to live? Those kinds of things. So rather than kind of standing back for it, we need to say, no, it's good and show people why it's mm. good, how it's connected to the to the rich goodness of God's character revealed. Um, so, you know, um, just thinking this morning um, about uh, the nature of judgment, actually, and the importance and value of judgment. I preached at church yesterday um, and uh, about anxiety, uh, and, and a woman asked a question afterwards. She said, well, I, I've, I've been in another church where there are always young children who had anxiety about kind of hell and all that kind of stuff, and how do we as evangelicals kind of not make people feel like that? And I really respect, like I, I hear there's a, there's a sense from her of connection with people or whatever. Mm. But the danger there is we go, oh, yes, this has made people anxious. We need to kind of back away from that. Whereas don't we need to say that the fact that God will judge the living and the dead is really, really precious? Because mm. if that's not true, there is no justice in the world. In fact, you know, I look at our legal system, I look at the people who get off, I look at the, the, you know, we live in a place that's very broken and we live in one of the most just societies in the world. Um, if, if judgment is not true, if there is no living and true God who's going to judge the world, then life in this world is absolutely crummy. Mm. You are concerned, Phil, about us being too apologetic in our preaching. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, something I've, I've thought quite a lot about. I, th- I think if God's word is good and we are to tremble at it and respond rightly to the God uh, uh, who is to be feared in that, in that broad sense of fear, uh, if that's the case, then we and we are, our job is to communicate God's good word and to communicate to people a right response to it. Then our way of communicating it has to be bold and unapologetic, mm-hmm. is the phrase I would like to use. And what, what I mean by that is uh, uh, we need to say to people uh, the right response to this is to be humble and submissive to this word. Mm-hmm. We, we, we mustn't preach in such a way that, that says to people, God's word always needs to be justified to you. Because when we say that, we're actually saying God needs to be justified. God has to justify himself. So when, at, at church, we're preaching to, first and foremost, yes, we've got an eye on the outsider, but we're, we're preaching to believers who, who have come to know Jesus and know the wonderful love of God. And so... We shouldn't preach in such a way that says everything God says, you have to uh, come to understand why it fits in with your view of good. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got to preach in a way that says God's word is good, and if there's a problem, let's bring our minds, that Romans 12 sense, let's bring our minds into line with God's word. Let's let's have our, our hearts and our minds renewed. Uh, and so 
I, I suppose what I'm wanting to encourage people to think about is being on the front foot in your preaching. Rather than starting with, there's this idea out here of what is good, let's see if we can make God's word, make God's word fit in with it. Mm-hmm. Instead say, our world is wrong. Our, our world is, is fundamentally out of step with God. Let's get our minds rightly calibrated by God's word and then let's critique our world rather than starting with the world and seeing if we can justify God's word to it. Mm. Why concede the negative? Uh, Our job is to get out there and say, we believe Jesus is Lord uh, and we want you to believe it too. What I'm more concerned about in Mm -hmm. talking about apologetics, uh, uh, Dominic, is uh, that thinking that uh, we have to answer all the world's questions rather than proclaim the goodness of the gospel. Uh, So where I was talking at the Nexus Conference is perhaps sometimes we're too apologetic in our own sermons to our people Mm -hmm. uh, that we actually should be more uh, on the front foot in critiquing the world and trying to reshape people's worldview so that they see the foolishness of the world and their their worldview is, is set by the world rather than seeing that we've got to answer the world's critique or question as the starting point. Yeah, I mean, I, I just think that whole space is really interesting, isn't it? I'm preaching on 1 Corinthians 10 in chapel tomorrow uh, at Moore College, mm-hmm. uh, uh, in which the Apostle Paul says that to participate in idolatry is to participate with demons. Um, and trying to think about kind of what we do with something like that. So I want to remind people that actually people who worship other religions and who bow down to false gods are actually involved at some level in in worshipping demons and need repentance and they need faith and they need life. Um, but I, I was thinking about that. So what do you do? Uh, welcome, demon worshipper. <laughs> I have a problem with you. Um, we need to work out how to know that truth really clearly that people are in a terrible place and they desperately need the gospel but what it, what is the what's the shape between the the warm and welcoming embrace for the for many of outsiders are just uh, they already think we've got two heads mm-hmm. uh, if I can use that description um, and so find it hard I think and our people find it hard to invite people into church because their friends are going well that's this crazy place where people believe all these ridiculous things so um, navigating that space being bold and unapologetic. And yet in a way that's warm and genuinely says to the outsider, I hear that you have real questions. Um, we think that there are some genuine answers in and the gospel, that our, thing. And generally yeah. says to our people as well, that I know the world you're living in. I know Abs- yeah, absolutely. The people you're sitting next to yeah, in the office. Totally. So, yeah, totally, yeah. Um, Titus 2, you kind of help me think about how I might preach on Titus 2 in the light of what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, Titus 2 is one of those classic passages, isn't it? So three times, verse 5, verse 8 and verse 10, we're told, if you live like this, the different groups of people, old men, young men, old women, young women, if you live like this, the word of God won't be maligned or the word of God will be, the doctrine of God will be adorned. Um, and what I find uh, in recent years as I preach that passage, people will always say to me, well, the things that Paul tells them to do in terms of a way of life, like submitting to your husband or loving your husband and children or not drinking much wine or whatever, those are the kinds of things that 
they don't cause people to adorn the word of God. They're the things that now cause people to ridicule the word of God. I had somebody say and exactly it, that when I preached on in December. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, we're, we're in a world where that then becomes kind of our hermeneutical way of reading the scriptures, right? So um, Paul was on for evangelistic benefit. In his day, these things commended the gospel to the world. In our day, they don't commend the gospel to the world anymore. So we need to find other things that we can say that kind of commends the gospel to the world. But if you actually slow down and look at the whole of that passage, the very first verse says to um, Titus, Paul says to Titus, teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. So he is adamant that these things that he's about to teach about the way that you live are actually line up with the truth about who God is and who Jesus is. And into the end of the passage, verses 11 to 14, we're told the grace of God has appeared and it trains us to say no to ungodliness and yes to righteousness. And there's a big because at the very beginning of this. Teach them to live like this so that the word of God won't be adorned, so it won't be maligned. Because the grace of God has come, which tells you to put off ungodliness and put on godliness. And then it tells you Jesus came to purify us from lawlessness, to re- sorry, to redeem us from lawlessness. That is, we have to be rescued from our rebellion and purified to do good works. So for Paul... The evangelistic outcome is that their life lines up with the truth about who God is and the way that Jesus is. Um, He knew uh, that not all of the Cretans were going to get on board and say, hey, you guys are doing the right thing, you know. So when he tells the older women, uh, don't be addicted to much wine, but we're told that Cretans are lazy brutes, evil gluttons and whatever else. I'm pretty sure that the the society and intelligentsia of Paul's day were not standing around going, oh, look at those sober people aren't there, over there. Isn't that a great way to live? Mm-hmm. Um, I think the scriptures tell us in every age, the way that Christians live will both look really weird and uncomfortable the outside world, but be somehow, and by the grace of God's spirit at work, attractive in that there's a gentleness, a graciousness, a winsomeness about love and respect and care that we live for each other. But what that means is that Paul's primary goal is not what does the outsider think is great? Now I'll tell them that and I'll tell them Jesus lines up with that. Paul's primary point is that there is a way of life that sits alongside the gospel because it reflects the character of God and the character of Jesus. And that things like submission and sobriety and kind, you know, all of those things are true because they're like God. And we ought to do that because they're like God. And for some of our neighbours, they'll go, that's great. I'd really like to know more about what's going on. And other people will ridicule us for that. I just think that's the absolute promise of Scripture. Um, 2 Timothy 3, you want to live a godly life, you will be persecuted. Mm. 2 Timothy 3.12. Yeah. It's it's actually uh, something we've talked about previously, but it's, it's the argument of the book of 1 Peter. It's the argument of how 1 Peter works, which is you live this godly life amongst the pagans. You're not doing it for for the purpose of uh, of them finding the gospel attractive. It's, that's not the driver. You're living a godly life because you are a new person in Christ. You're a part of these new people of God who've been redeemed. Yeah. But, Paul, Peter says, but as you do that, they'll find you to be a conundrum. Mm-hmm. Because they'll say, he says evil things, he believes. For back then, he says that gods aren't real. You know, he's an atheist back in the ancient world, you you know. Uh, But he's he's gracious. 
And look at the way he loves his neighbour. And, and look at the way he's the person who shows up to help me when I'm in need. He's a conundrum. She's a conundrum. Mm. Uh, but you see, it's not, nowhere in Peter's argument in 1 Peter is it, so try and fit in with the world so that they'll find you attractive. Yep. It's though they accuse you of evil. But you see, see, so what we do is we get on with trying to live a godly life. But in our, there is something about graciousness and godliness and forgiveness that in some way might make someone want to know the reason for your hope to trace through yeah. Peter's argument. Yeah. That's why I think that's what we want to encourage in our interaction with the world. We want to encourage Christians to be conundrums to the world. I think that's, that's my way of it's thinking. A great, it's a great it, phrase, Phil. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It, to be a conundrum, to be someone who they go, not someone who fits in with the world, who they go, oh, look at that, he's conceded ground on gender or mm. sexual ethics or whatever it is. No, no, he holds to the scriptures. But wow, I can't quite work him out because he says things I really don't like and don't fit in with our tolerance policy here at work. But he's the nicest bloke at work and he's gracious. Well, she's the she's the person who's here to help me when I'm in, in a time of need. That's the conundrum that will lead our world to want to know the reason for our hope. Yeah. Thanks very much for coming in. My guests on The Pastor's Heart, Phil Colgan, the Senior Minister of St George North Anglican Church here in Sydney, and Paul Grimmond, who is the Dean of Students at Sydney's Moore Theological College. You've been with us on The Pastor's Heart, and we say thank you for your company, and we'll look forward to seeing you next Tuesday afternoon. Hey, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, we would love it if you could hop over to the Apple Podcasts app and give us a rating and review. That helps us in the rankings and lets other people discover the pastor's heart. And again, if you are able to help us out by being a financial partner, go to our Patreon link, patreon.com slash the pastor's heart.